Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 1, Dragon Slayer. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, on our first episode, we're going to talk about one of my favorite characters from the early church, the soldier, martyr, and dragon slayer, St. George. For a saint with such an epic legend, and such a beloved legacy, St. George is surprisingly hard to pin down as a historical figure. All we can say with confidence is that he was martyred during the great persecution of the early 4th century. Beyond that, it becomes challenging to sort history from fable. Apparently, this was already the case by the year 495, when Pope St. Galatius I listed George as one of those saints whose names are justly reverenced among men, but whose actions are known only to God. George is by no means unique in being rather mysterious. Many saints of the early church are even harder to track down from a historian's point of view. Some are known by little more than their names. It's clear that a Christian martyr named George really did exist. The early and widespread signs of his veneration are evidence enough of that. But it's not always an easy task to separate the man from the myth. Yet even if we don't know much about the historical St. George, we thankfully know a great deal about the historical period in which he lived. Earlier, I mentioned that George was killed during the Great Persecution, a time that left a profound impression on the memory of Christians forever after. Most of us today have heard of the Great Persecution. Perhaps we know it had something to do with the Roman Emperor Diocletian, and we hear the names of its victims, such as Lucy, Cecilia, and Anastasia, venerated in the Roman liturgy. But I think our mental image of this crucial period is often rather vague, a tangle of names, places, and events, some familiar, others not so much, so a bit of background might be helpful. St. George lived at a time when the Roman Empire was crawling its way out of a crisis. For most of the 3rd century AD, the empire had been torn apart by civil wars, barbarian invasions, and plague. But the Romans, being Romans, held on by the proverbial skin of their teeth, and by the year 300, a series of strong-willed rulers had managed to rebuild the empire, though the empire they rebuilt was hardly recognizable. Gone was the fiction, maintained since before the birth of our Lord, that the Caesars were mere servants of the Senate and people of Rome, the fiction that the Republic had never really fallen. 
In its place were new emperors, who expected to be worshipped as living gods, while their ever-multiplying swarms of soldiers, tax collectors, and bureaucrats descended like locusts upon the ever-more impoverished masses. It was a grim time to be a Roman. But at least the god-emperors, safely locked away in their gilded palaces behind silken veils and clouds of incense, now had a better life expectancy than fruit flies. The plebs may have been poorer, more degraded, and less free than they ever had been, but they didn't have to endure a new civil war every five minutes. The new despotism of the dominants, as this terminal stage of Roman history has come to be known, was, if nothing else, a step above total collapse. If St. George really was a Roman soldier, as tradition has it, then he must have been painfully aware of the darkness and despondency of the world around him. He would have grown up in the far eastern provinces of the empire, and learned his profession in the hard school of late Roman warfare. According to his earliest biographies, first written in Greek during the 5th century, and surviving today in a Syriac translation from around the year 600, George was born to a Christian family in Cappadocia, a region of present-day Turkey. We are told that his father was martyred when George was only 14 years old. Thereafter, George and his mother moved south to their ancestral home in Palestine. When he came of age, 17 at the youngest, George enlisted in the Roman army, a dangerous but promising career at the time, and a surprisingly common one for Christian men. It's here that the early stories about George become muddled, and various accounts conflict about the place and manner of his death. The Greek, or Syriac version, claims that he was executed in the grand city of Nicomedia, not far from Istanbul in modern-day Turkey, during the Great Persecution. In this tradition, George was beheaded for confessing his faith, possibly by tearing down an edict that ordered the persecution of his fellow Christians. But in a different version of the tale, written in Latin during the 6th century, George was martyred far to the east at the city of Melitene, in the heart of his Cappadocian homeland. The Latin story is more gruesome than the Greek, with George suffering over twenty forms of torture across the span of seven years. But his endurance does lead to the conversion of nearly 50,000 people. The trouble with both these narratives, apart from their inconsistency, is that the cult of St. George began neither at Nicomedia nor at Melitene, but rather far to the south, in the Palestinian town of Lydda, which is close to Tel Aviv in modern-day Israel. In the early church, the veneration of martyrs was almost always centered at the places where they had died. Saints Peter and Paul, for instance, were not originally from Rome, but they became powerful patrons of the Roman Church, because Rome had been the site 
of their martyrdom. In the case of St. George, we have a great deal of evidence from as early as the 4th century, that is, in the lifetime of people who had known him, that he was venerated as a martyr at Lydda. So what are we to make of the conflicting stories that place George's martyrdom at Nicomedia or Melitene? Even if we'll never know the real story of St. George, we're not entirely in the dark. We do know quite a lot about the great persecution that claimed George's life, and the men responsible for it. Do you remember those divine emperors I mentioned, who had rebuilt the Roman Empire as a bureaucratic despotism? Well, the most important of them was named Diocletian. The Emperor Diocletian had come to power in the year 285, and soon set about reforming the governments according to his own, often idiosyncratic, schemes. Some of his plans were beneficial, reorganizing the army in the provinces, for example. But others were downright nuts, like trapping most of the empire's citizens in hereditary serfdom. But by far his most infamous policy was the Great Persecution, which he began in the year 303 with a rabidly anti-Christian colleague named Galerius. The story goes that magic lay behind Diocletian's disdain for Christianity. In accordance with ancient practice, the emperor was accustomed to take auguries, predictions of the future, from his pagan priests. These rituals of divination usually involved studying the entrails of sacrificed animals. Supposedly, the gods would speak through the splattering of blood and guts. It was a grisly tradition, but a deeply Roman one, going all the way back to the days of Romulus and Remus. And for all that Diocletian had in reality revolutionized Roman governments, he was keen to present himself as a defender of traditional Roman ways. So we can imagine the emperor's frustration at being told one day that his priests could not obtain an augury. Something was interfering with their connection to the gods. Some deeper magic was thwarting their own. Upon investigation, it turned out that the emperor's Christian slaves had been making the sign of the cross while the augurs were trying to work. The spirits, who would normally have given hints of the future, were instead fleeing from the power of Christ. Needless to say, Diocletian was not amused. That story may or may not be true. Today, people tend to dismiss the augurs as charlatans, and indeed, many Romans felt the same way. Centuries before Diocletian, philosophers like Plutarch and Cicero had famously doubted the existence of the gods themselves. But whether or not Diocletian really was outraged by a failed augury, he had more cynical reasons to move against the church. By the end of the 3rd century, 
Christianity had become much more than a religion of outcasts. The church had received many wealthy converts, mostly women, along with their land and money, and had developed a tight-knit hierarchy apart from the Roman governments, what historians have called a state within a state. Rome's pagan elites, already weakened from the civil wars of the 3rd century, felt ever more threatened by the rise of Christianity. A religion that could allow a former slave like St. Calixtus I to become Pope was bound to disturb the aristocracy. By presenting himself as a restorer of pagan tradition against the upstart church, Diocletian could assuage the fears of the old elites and draw attention away from the many drastic changes he was in fact making to the life of the empire. It didn't hurt that opposition to Christianity also gave him a pretext to plunder the wealth of the church. So when, in the year 303, Diocletian's co-emperor Galerius suggested that Christians be stripped of their legal rights and forced to worship the pagan gods, Diocletian agreed. We are now in a better position to guess the true story of St. George. In the 5th and 6th century biographies I mentioned earlier, George's persecutor was variously a Roman official named Dadianus, or a Persian shah named Dacianus. Neither is a real historical figure. Both seem to be corruptions of the name Diocletian, who ultimately was responsible for the killing of St. George and countless other Christian martyrs. At the start of the Great Persecution, Diocletian was based in Nicomedia, one of the wealthiest cities of the East, having delegated co-emperors like Galerius to govern the rest of the unwieldy Roman Empire. That explains why one version of the story connects George's martyrdom to Nicomedia. The order had come down from there. But what about the other version of the story, where George is killed by the Persians at Melitene? This version is much later, and comes from the Latin West, far from the events it describes, so it is even less reliable than the first. But perhaps there is a shred of truth in associating George with the region of Melitene. After all, both accounts agree that George originally hailed from Cappadocia, and if he was a soldier on the Eastern Front, then he may very well have served in the war that was fought between Rome and Persia during the 290s. Perhaps the Melitene version retains a memory of George as a soldier battling the Persians, who had long been, and would long remain, the greatest enemies of the Roman Empire. While of course we can't be certain, I think we can piece together these fragments into a more cohesive picture. George was born to Christian parents in Cappadocia. 
he served the Roman Empire as a soldier in Diocletian's war with Persia. And, despite his service, he was eventually martyred for his faith at Lydda, which may have been his mother's hometown. The Christians of Lydda adopted George as a local saint, preserving his remains as holy relics and building a church around his tomb. Within a decade of his death, the great persecution itself had come to an end. And with the new toleration of Christianity under the Emperor Constantine, a story for another time, word of George's heroism could spread openly throughout the empire, attracting pilgrims from far and wide to pay their respects at Lydda. Over the centuries, his reputation as a megalomartyr, a Greek honorific meaning great witness, continued to grow as more and more pilgrims attested to his miraculous intercession. That, at least, is the picture I would form out of the historical puzzle of St. George. I'm sure at this point you're wondering, but what about the dragon? I found myself asking the same question when I first looked into the history of St. George. As it turns out, the most famous story about this great saint was not recorded for more than 700 years after his death. The tale of St. George the Dragon Slayer is a product of the High Middle Ages, and looks, on the surface, to have little to do with the late Roman martyr. We first encounter this legend, appropriately enough, in the nation of Georgia, a kingdom under the patronage of St. George, even if it wasn't originally named after him. The Georgians, a people living in the Caucasus Mountains between the Black and Caspian Seas, had converted to Christianity in the 4th century, not long after George's death, and over the course of the early Middle Ages, they had fostered a fantastic tradition of stories about their patron saint. Some of these tales must have made their way to Palestine, likely spread by pilgrims bound for Lydda, for by the 12th century, the legend of St. George and the Dragon had been brought all the way back to Western Europe by crusaders who had heard it in the Holy Land. In the medieval West, St. George found a new role as the patron saint of chivalry. He was adopted by kings and knightly orders all across Europe, and his heraldry, the Red Cross on a white field, became the national flag of both England and Georgia. It may seem like the legendary dragon slayer, armored in knightly steel and riding on a white steed, is a rather far cry from the historical martyr. But is it? The dragon in mythology is a symbol of primordial evil, the cold-hearted, fire-breathing monster of chaos. Whether or not St. George ever slew an overgrown lizard, it's entirely fitting that he should be remembered as a dragon slayer. What better image of the battle between the self-sacrificing hero and the voracious tyranny 
of false gods. A battle which St. George, soldier of Christ, really did fight in the agony of his martyrdom. On the deepest levels of allegorical meaning, I'd say the legend of St. George the Dragon Slayer is just as true as the history of St. George the Martyr. I'd like to read you the classic English version of the tale, William Caxton's Renaissance translation from the Golden Legend, a medieval collection of saints' lives. I've adapted the wording to make it easier on modern ears, but a sense of the original ought to come through. I hope you enjoy. Here follows the life of St. George, the Martyr. St. George was a knight, born in Cappadocia. Once upon a time, he came into the province of Libya, to a city which is called Silene. And by this city was a swamp as vast as a sea, wherein was a dragon, which envenomed all the country. Once the people assembled to slay it, but when they saw it, they fled. And when it came near the city, it envenomed the people with its breath, and therefore the people of the city gave it every day two sheep, so that it would do no harm to the people. And when the sheep failed, there was taken a man and a sheep. Then was an ordinance made in the town that there should be taken the children and young people by lot, and every one as it fell, were he gentle or poor, should be delivered when the lot fell on him or her. So it happened that many of the townsfolk were then delivered, until the lot fell upon the king's daughter. The king was sorry, and said unto the people, For the love of the gods, take gold and silver and all that I have, but let me have my daughter. They said, How, sir, you have ordained the law, and our children are now dead, and you would do the contrary. Your daughter shall be given, or else we shall burn you and your house. When the king saw he could do no more, he began to weep, and said to his daughter, now I shall never see your espousals. Then he returned to the people and demanded eight days' respite, and they granted it to him. But when the eight days were past, they came to him and said, You see that the city perishes. Then the king dressed his daughter as if she were to be wedded, and embraced her and kissed her and gave her his benediction. And after, he led her to the place of the dragon. When she was there, St. George passed by. And when he saw the lady, he asked to know what she was doing there. She said, Go on your way, fair young man, that you perish not also. Then said he, Tell me why you weep, and doubt nothing. 
when she saw that he would know. She told him how she had been delivered to the dragon. Then said St. George, Fair daughter, doubt nothing, for I shall help you in the name of Jesus Christ. She said, For God's sake, good knight, go your way and abide not with me, for you may not deliver me. Thus, as they were speaking together, the dragon appeared and came running toward them. St. George was upon his horse and drew out his sword and garnished himself with the sign of the cross and rode heartily against the dragon which came towards him and smote it with his spear and hurt it sore and threw it to the ground. After that, he said to the maid, Deliver to me your girdle, and bind it about the neck of the dragon, and be not afraid. When she had done so, the dragon followed her, as if it were a meek beast. Then she led it into the city, and the people fled to the mountains and valleys, and said, Alas, alas, we shall all be dead. But St. George said to them, Doubt nothing. Without more, you must believe in God, Jesus Christ, and be baptized, and I shall slay the dragon. Then the king was baptized, and all his people, and St. George slew the dragon and smote off its head, and commanded that it should be thrown in the fields, and on four carts pulled by oxen, they drew it out of the city. Then there were well fifteen thousand men baptized, not including the women and children, and the king made a church there of Our Lady and St. George, in which sprung a fountain of living water, which heals sick people that drink of it. After this, the king offered St. George as much money as there might be numbered, but he refused it all and commanded that it should be given to poor people for God's sake and enjoined the king four things, that he should be guardian of the churches, and that he should honor the priests, and that he should hear their service diligently, and that he should have pity on the poor. After that, St. George kissed the king and departed. There is great truth in this tale even if it never literally happened. It contains echoes of many older stories. The theme of parents feeding their children to a monster, for example, may remind you of Theseus and the Minotaur. But it does more than reassemble fragments of pagan mythology. The legend of St. George and the Dragon presents the hero's quest in a decidedly Christian way. The saint fights not for wealth, or fame, or even for his own people, but rather for the glory of God. He rights the wrongs of a whole society that has fallen into wickedness for fear of an evil it cannot control. A community in which the old sacrifice the young to preserve their own selfish lives, and whose leaders try to shirk the unjust laws they themselves have written held in check only by the fear of anarchy.
the venom of the dragon's breath, has poisoned not only the land, but the very hearts of its people. Into this realm, sick with sin, rides the hero, summoned to noble deeds by the plea of a princess. It's not just the trope of a damsel in distress, as jaded modern readers like to assume. No. The princess in fairy tale is a symbol of purity, innocence, and all that is worth preserving from moral corruption. Dressed in her white bridal gown, she is to be offered to the dragon in a mockery of marriage. That most tender and intimate moment of life is to become an occasion of horror. Without the bravery of the strong, all that is fair, bright, and beautiful will be consumed by darkness. But George, without a moment's hesitation, vows to make sure that will not happen. Being a man at peace with God, his heart aflame with the courage and wisdom that come from the Holy Spirit, he takes bold, decisive, confident action to strike down the embodiments of evil. When he has subdued the beast, he calls upon the princess to use her garter, the very sign of her chastity and innocence, to bind the dragon. Together, the man of valor and the woman of virtue show the realm what can be done when good people choose to act. The story is obviously true to anyone who has faced real darkness and refused to give in to despair. There are many dragons in our world. Death, disease, mental illness, poverty, violence, and countless others. We can choose to hide from them, like the townsfolk in the legend, with inevitable results. Or, we can choose to confront them, facing discomfort and danger to do what we know to be right. If we take the latter path in a spirit of humility, we can place our absolute confidence in God, knowing that he will set all things right in the end. That, at any rate, is how I read the story of St. George, both martyr and dragon slayer. His veneration down the ages testifies to the power of his intercession on our behalf, and we would all do well to pray to him when we find ourselves in need of courage. As I record this episode in the year of our Lord, 2022, I think it's safe to say that the last couple years have seen the world gripped by an all-too-draconic sense of fear. But whenever, or wherever you are listening, I'm sure there will still be dragons to slay. If you would like to learn more about devotion to St. George and call upon the Dragon Slayer's aid in your own life, 
then take a look at the show notes, where I've included links to prayers and resources for further reading. May St. George, Megalomartyr, Dragonslayer, Patron of Many Nations, and Hero of the Christian Faith, come to our aid, now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.